0: I think as a young preacher or you know teacher, naturally you feel inadequate and you feel like who am I? And there's other scholars or preachers who have so much more experience and insight. And you know you you, you try to uh, draw from them. That that's not wrong. But I think over time, hopefully, we will grow in in confidence that you know we have something to say ourselves, and that that God wants us to be ourselves. You know, He doesn't want us to to try to pretend to be somebody we're not or to just kind of, uh, you know, draw from from maybe some of the, the most popular preachers out there.
1: Hi, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 163. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the voice that you just heard is that of Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. He is the research professor of New Testament and biblical theology and the director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, This guy is a prolific author. He has about 50 books that he has uh, contributed to or authored over the course of his very productive adult life. Most of his books or a lot of his work has been in the Gospel of John, and uh, I have been preaching through the Gospel of John in uh, my own church for the past uh, 12 months. And I've been frequently consulting his written works over the past year. And so to be able to speak to him in person was a real treat. So this conversation is far-reaching and spans wide. We talk about family life, sabbaticals, biblical theology, character formation, TikTok, and so much more. Um, I don't want to spend too much time here at the front end, but hear me out. Listen to what I'm about to say. Don't fast forward through this part. If you're listening to this podcast as it comes out, it's scheduled to come out on the 20th of April, 2021. And so if you're listening to it in this first week, we have a giveaway for you. One of his most recent books that have come out is called Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, Volume 2, and it's put out by, uh, by Kriegel Academic. And we're partnering with them and they're doing a giveaway. And so on our social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, there's ways for you to enter and to participate in this giveaway. And uh, we have multiple copies of his book that we want to give to you, the listener to the Expositors Collective podcast. It's only open for this first week of this podcast release. So head over to our socials right now and make sure that you enter into this contest. And also Lexum Press, who have been longtime friends of the Expositors Collective. They also are getting in on this and uh, they have two of his books that they are going to be giving a deep discount to for the listeners to the Expositors Collective podcast. So you go to lexumpress.com/expositors And there's two books that are there at a deep discount, one of which is on the Gospel of John and the other is on 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. So again, we have a lot of books to give away for free and we have other books that you get a special discount on only if you act quickly. Okay, speaking of acting quickly, I'm going to actually stop talking now and let you get to the actual interview. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. I'm I'm thrilled to be with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Uh, good morning. Good
0: morning. Or should uh, I say good I'm, afternoon?
1: Yes. Yeah, we were just talking about how I am an American living in Europe, and you are a European uh, living in in America. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, we're we're glad to we're glad to have you, and you've. Um, yeah. Uh, thank you for making time for this conversation. So I just want to jump, jump straight into it. Like there's loads, like I know you have an interesting life and sometimes, uh, to, um, when I ask this question, it kind of lets people into those lives a little bit, but, um, would you mind telling us about the first time that you ever like preached a sermon? Like you're known as the kind of a scholar or a, or, a, or an author, but like you have also preached and when did you begin preaching?
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, that was, that was quite a while ago. Um, I'm, not even sure it was my very first sermon, but at least one of the first sermons I preached was on john's prologue uh, and I remember it very well. My main proposition was that being precedes doing now uh, pretty uh, you know heavy duty uh, deep theological uh, topic. Uh, in Jesus case of course uh, he's the word He's the agent of creation who existed with God before the world began and so everything he did while on earth and I think that's uh, John's point flowed from from his divinity um, and my application as, as you might guess was that uh, we're often too concerned uh, about doing about programs and activities and and while those are important, uh, we shouldn't neglect being character, integrity, uh, growth in Christ-likeness. You know, and I, I was very convinced that that not only was that uh, faithfully proclaiming God's word, I, I felt my audience really uh, needed to hear that message. Uh, probably the the greatest compliment I got is that just a couple of months ago, and my my son was with me, it, it, close to twenty five years after I preached that message. I had someone come up to me at a car inspection place who told me that, totally unsolicited, they still remember that message. No uh, way. You know, considering that people often don't remember last Sunday's message, that was a great yeah. compliment and encouragement to me.
1: Oh, my goodness. Well, well I mean, on the one hand, I am I'm very I should say I'm not surprised at all that it was from John's gospel. Um, I know that you've spent so much of your life kind of living in and with uh, the gospel of John or the theology of John. So it's it's interesting or surpri- not surprising that you you began your preaching career as it were uh, through that. Um, when when did that take place and 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 where was it? Was it over here? Was it in Vienna or was it over in the U.S.?
0: It was in the fall of 1996 in the chapel of uh, Southeastern Baptist theological seminary in Wake Forest North Carolina where I served as professor for 22 years.
1: Okay. So so you you had been like involved in Christian ministry as as a professor already. Okay. And so that was your so the transition then from the academic teaching to a more like uh, devotional or or heart pointed, uh, did you find that to be a challenging transition to to preach a sermon and not break into the the syntax of the particular language? Or
0: well, I had a very radical conversion experience as a twenty three year old uh, where you know God's word really converted me and just kind of drew me to God and. Yes. So as a result, I, I never really looked myself as primarily a scholar, but always primarily as, you know, somebody who was a sinner saved by grace and who who desperately needed, you know, Christ and, and you know, learned to depend on Him and, and follow Him radically. So, uh, you know, I always felt I was a bit of an outsider, if you will, in the academic world because, uh, you know, I, I deeply, you know, cared for God's Word and loved God's Word. But, you know, I... I, it just came from from deep personal need and yeah. an experience with god
1: and um was that sermon like when you stepped down from from that pulpit did you feel like that went good <laughs> or uh or was it more of a nerve-wracking experience um many of the people that we have on this on this um podcast they tend to be quite young and somewhat inexperienced and so their first sermon be it at youth group or whatever um usually they barely grasp the text. They're kind of, you know, pushed into the pulpit a little bit too early. That doesn't seem to be the case for you.
0: Well, I think I was well-trained, you know, in seminary, and I didn't mention the sermons I preached in my various, you know, sermon labs uh, where, you know, I uh, hopefully, you know, learned some early lessons, and my professor and my fellow students critiqued me. That was at Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina, where you know, went to seminary in the uh, mid to late 80s. So, yes, uh, I felt I was well uh, trained and uh, I I tend to be, uh, f- uh, you know, fairly well prepared when I step into the pulpit. And uh, so as a result, uh, I guess my main concern is that I, I basically just deliver the message that, you know, I prepared, hopefully, you know, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, you uh, And then I I try not to take my cue so much uh, from how the audience responds because, you know, only God knows people's hearts. And uh, as long as I'm faithful to uh, preach God's Word, you know, I I trust that the Spirit will use His Word to move in the hearts of, of, of the people. Wow.
1: Well, that was I. I did some quick math. I have always get the math wrong, but that was twenty six years ago, I believe. Yeah, or? yeah,
0: that's that's right.
1: Okay, okay. I'm I'm I've been doubting myself, even though <laughs> um, I always I always get the math wrong. But so in in those twenty six years, I you've 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 preached um, since then. How do you think that you've like grown or improved since then? It sounds like you had a, a good head start, but but certainly in twenty five years, you've improved since then. Yeah. Well,
0: that's a that's a a good question, and uh, you know, I'm on sabbatical this year, and so I tend to reflect a little bit more on, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where I'm at in life, and then maybe where I should go in the future. So that's a timely question. Um, it's hard to answer in, in just a few sentences because I think I've grown quite a bit um, in you know in those years. I right? both in in my Bible knowledge, okay. and also. I think in 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 just life experience and character uh, in terms of bible knowledge I've had the opportunity to to study and teach and and write rather widely um even just in the last few years I was able to publish books covering the entire New Testament I wrote a book on you know the Jesus of the gospels and I did a handbook on Hebrews through revelation and a I wrote a second edition of a book called Salvation to the Ends of the Earth, which uh, pretty much covers the entire uh, New Testament with a focus on Luke Acts. Uh, So I've gotten to know God's word uh, better, which is, of course, indispensable for a Bible teacher and preacher, uh, much better than I I did 25 years ago. Um, In terms of character, of course, um, I, I was a newlywed back then. Uh, and since then, my wife and I have raised uh, four children to mature adulthood, and we've been married for over 30 years. So I think I've learned a lot about about life, certainly about, um, you know, uh, parenting and then hopefully being becoming a better husband, how to uh, even deal with, you know, some of the negatives that you encounter in ministry, you know, dealing with maybe uh, people who might misrepresent you or who might be, yeah. um, you know, even jealous of you in some cases and other uh, forms of suffering. Finally, I, I think I've grown as a communicator. Um, I, I've learned how to target my work better, both in writing and in speaking to uh, different audiences and age groups. Uh, I, tend to speak quite a bit to high school and college students these days, partly because I have children that age myself. Okay. Uh, and so uh, that takes a little bit of an adjustment to, to stay young, if you will, and to, to stay yeah, fresh yeah. On, on, on what's going on in the culture.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. I, each each one of those, like I would love to explode each one of those. I, I I'm trying to, to guard the time. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But I can I circle back to a few of those things. I'd love to hear like your your thoughts on each of those. How how has um you, you mentioned kind of early in the in the list? Like okay, there's Bible knowledge, and you've grown to Bible knowledge. And and then, but you said like, but character wise, and then you've listed these experiences, experiences even of even of suffering. Um, how has how has like suffering uniquely prepared you or improved you as as a preacher?
0: Well, uh, I think you think of books like Second Corinthians that are just deeply personal. In some ways, I think it's 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 one of the most um, personal books uh, other than Second Timothy that. That Paul wrote, and uh, it's a book I really didn't understand that well, or had little use for earlier in my, you know, career, if you will. Uh, but increasingly, as I went through, you know, some uh, challenges in my ministry, I, I gradually was able to relate better and better to Paul. And so, uh, you know, sometimes you see preachers, especially maybe younger preachers, like I was. Who you can kind of sense that they're preaching God's word, but it doesn't maybe resonate that fully with their experience. It's sure. it's a little bit more theory, and that's I guess how it was for me. Uh, but you know, at one point, I had someone who betrayed me. You know, a close friend, uh, and uh, it 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 just helped me understand. Uh, you know, the betrayal that Paul might have felt. Uh, at times from people he trusted and was close to, and then they turned against him. And, of course, uh, Jesus and his experience with Judas as well. And so it's not that God's word becomes any more true at that point, but, you know, it just resonates more with your own experience.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, But, I mean, I, I had something similar with, you know, the Psalms, you know, the Psalms always seem like these this nice little book to dip into um, from time to time. And, you know, it's kind of a nice poem to pray. It wasn't until I had Enemies... Until I had real enemies that all of a sudden I was like, oh, this book <laughs> makes a whole lot of sense. You know, i I'd, I'd been, you know, this is me as a as a 24 year old or whatever, just kind of, uh, you know, as David speaks about his enemies. And it's like, well, I guess I have an enemy, the devil, you know, the world, the flesh. And and that's that's true. But it wasn't until there's people that like had a unified plan to take me down that all of a sudden the Psalms like become incredibly relevant. And and similar, I'm sure, with two Corinthians and and Timothy. Yeah, so I think I perhaps, you know, as like the, you're right, the 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 word, the Bible doesn't change, but I think our our ability or the depth of us as persons to experience it, the older we get or the more suffering that we experience, maybe the more it even resonates. Uh, so I want to now, now jump to the opposite. You you mentioned that suffering um, caused you to grow as a teacher or preacher. a preacher, and then you also mentioned you know um, parenting and and marriage. How has how has like family life?
0: Uh, over these years improved you or caused you to grow anyway as a, as a teacher or preacher? Well, you know, I sometimes tell people I, I thought I was doing pretty well as a Christian and then I got married. <laughs> and then after a few years, I thought, you know, I was doing okay, uh, you know, as a Christian and in my marriage. And then I had a child with my wife and then uh, we thought we did fairly well. And then we had a second child and, uh, and then a third and the fourth. And so I think I've seen that God really has used uh, marriage and and family uh, just in the area of sanctification, just partly to show me my sin that uh, maybe uh, was brought out by, you know, challenges, uh, somebody very different from me, uh, having to learn to, to not just think of myself, but to think of, you know, others and and uh, parenting, of course, uh, challenges like, you know, resolving conflict and dealing with sibling rivalry and, and and just even make make time for my children rather than just kind of fitting them into my life, which, you know, children, uh, they don't want to just be fit in giving a compartment in, in, in your life. You know, uh, you yeah. need to love them and be there for them when they need you. So, uh, yeah, a uh, lot of lessons related to to marriage and parenting.
1: Yeah, well, I and mean, this might be a good point for me just to 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 stop and to plug and say, uh, man, I, I loved your book, God, Marriage, and Family. That was um, I really really enjoyed appreciate the 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 work that you put into that. Um, and so I'm not surprised even when you list when you list your marriage your marriage and your family as kind of like instruments that God used to to develop you as a as a teacher and a, and a preacher of God's word. Uh, so, okay, I'm trying to now make a smooth transition from one topic to the next. And let me just warn you, this is not going to be a smooth transition, okay? Um, what role do you think biblical theology plays um, for the expositional teacher and preacher? Listen, I tried. I just couldn't, I couldn't see it in to make a smooth transition yes. from one well, point to the next. I mean, I
0: love marriage and family, and I also love biblical theology because... <laughs> I find that, you know, we often talk about authorial intent, you know, that it's important that we, uh, as interpreters of Scripture, uh, ask the question, you know, what did a given author of Scripture, you know, intend to convey with what he was saying? Um, and I think biblical theology is is the equivalent of, of asking questions, you know, related to uh, the intent of the author. Uh, it's primarily historical, it's inductive, it's initially descriptive, and so I see a lot of resonance between expository preaching and biblical theology. I Actually, I believe that biblical theology can significantly strengthen and undergird expository preaching. Uh, the, the strength of expository preaching, as I see it, is that uh, a preacher explains a passage phrase by phrase, uh, line by line uh, it's textually uh oriented and then you know follows closely and then and, and, uh, and explains uh a passage uh you know thoroughly but I think in addition it'll be very helpful in understanding a passage to draw connections between that passage and other passages in scripture uh for example if you preach th- through Galatians uh you you may look at the the, you know, the the Old Testament passages Paul himself uh, cites, especially in in chapters three and four, and show how the the situation in Galatia relates to earlier scripture. And of course, you should also place Galatians in the flow of the Book of Acts and the uh, the Gentile mission of the early church. Um, and I think in this way, you also uh, help your people think theologically and become better readers and interpreters of the Bible. Uh, Or, you know, to give an Old Testament example as well, you could look at the book of Esther. And again, rather than preaching Esther just as a book, you know, but somewhat in a canonical vacuum, uh, you can draw connections with earlier scripture. For example, in, in chapter three, the author mentions that Haman, the villain in the story, is an Agagite. Now, I remember the first time, you know, I read that, I skipped right over it. Uh, but somehow I read somewhere, maybe saw it in my study Bible, in the in the study notes, that there's a parallel passage in 1 Samuel that says that Saul was uh, told to deal with the Agagites. But because uh, he failed to do so, here we are, several hundred years later, there's still uh, this descendant of the Agagites, Haman, who threatens the survival of the Jewish nation. So I think the point the author is making then, and again, we're here with authorial intent, if we read the text carefully, uh, if Saul had dealt with the agagites as God told him to, there would be no Haman. Um, And, uh, you know, there there are also numerous other uh, intertextual connections between Esther and earlier deliverers in Israel's history, for example, uh, Joseph or Moses. So uh, the author of Esther presents her, I believe, as a female deliverer in the vein of earlier national figures such as uh, Joseph or Moses. When you think about it, you know, you have Esther revealing her true identity at a banquet. Well, that's very resonant with uh, Joseph revealing his identity to his brother's also at a banquet and you know there's many other uh, parallels that that uh, you know will come to the surface if we're careful uh, readers of a text wow
1: wow so maybe first off that's that's great I've never considered Esther's self-revelation at a banquet in in light of of Joseph's that's that's gold. Did you just make that up? Or, or is, this the, is this a known thing amongst you scholars?
0: Well, I think there's a, uh, a very helpful uh, Old Testament introduction by Tremper Longman and Raymond Dillard. And I've learned a lot from their chapter on Esther. Uh, there they talk about the fact that the whole book is essentially a book uh, of banquets, you know, where you start out with this banquet where Vashti is, ends up being deposed the and then the climax is, yeah. right, Esker's, uh, you know, back-to-back banquets and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, you do try to uh, consult, uh, you know, really nurturing and, and, and helpful resources and, and incorporate it into your teaching and preaching.
1: Wow. Man, that's 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 very exciting. I mean, not to not to mention your God, marriage, and family book again. That's not the only book of yours that I've read. Just so you know, but but I think you you had something about I don't know if it was working forwards or backwards, but it was about Adam and Eve, and then comparing them. I think to Samson and Delilah. I think um, is that. Or am I? Did I, Am I getting it confused with something else? But um, either, either working from one forward or the other backwards, and then showing these these connections. But is is biblical theology? Is it just a matter of like collecting fascinating cross references, or is there more to biblical theology than that?
0: Yeah, there's th- that is a big part of it to to understand that uh, you know God's uh, plan of salvation unfolds organically in keeping with God's character. And so there's certain patterns of history, you know, you might call it typology, where you see a certain event, like Jesus talks about the serpent in the wilderness being lifted up. And likewise, he, the son of man must be lifted up. Uh, And so uh, you see those, those patterns in history. I, I think the other thing that, uh, in that biblical theology does is it helps us be sensitive to the storyline of scripture, uh, you know, rather than just kind of looking at it, uh, piecemeal, you know, even though God's truth is precious wherever it is found, but, but then there's, the, the Bible has a certain narrative, you know, thrust and logic and, and it's, uh, it's a story of, of, of God's redemption in the Messiah, uh, prompted yeah. by his love for, for, for humanity. And so, any passage of scripture you preach, uh, especially in light of biblical theology, you, you want to keep an eye on where we are in the story of God's redemption. Okay, okay, okay.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> and, you know, I... I preached at my my friend's church this is this is many years ago and uh you know, I aim for for what you're I obviously I aim for. It. Who knows if I'm if I'm doing it well. But you know, this this connecting of, you know, the inter intertextual connections and and highlighting those and showing how this this event is prefigured by this and then ultimately is pointing towards the 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 death and resurrection of Christ or even the, the coming kingdom and and trying to show those connections. And then afterwards I was speaking to a, a young, kind of ministry-minded uh young man in the church and he was just like just as his, his his mind was blown by those by those connections and was so excited, and he was asking me like, you know, where do, where do you learn this? And I was pointing him towards, you know, is it Vern Polyth? I don't know how to pronounce his name, polythorous. Uh, Polythris. Yes, Vern. I was pointing him. to, Yeah, I I was mispronouncing his name, but but you know, pointing him towards this book or to or to that book, or to, you got to listen to this podcast. So there's this or there's that. And then the the, the pastor of the church, uh, my friend Char. He kind of came up to the conversation and maybe like like put a hand on my shoulder. And I was like, you know, but but the most important thing is you just got to know the Bible really, really, really well. You got to read the Bible like over and over and over and over again. It's not just a matter of finding the right author who's going to to just throw a bunch of chain references at you, but it's it's being familiar with like the flow, the storyline more than just what's the best podcast to listen to that's going to help you see those things.
0: Yeah, that's so true. And, you know, again, if people sometimes ask me, how how do I develop greater fluency in, in biblical theology? And, and just like you said, I, I tell them there's no better way than to read large chunks of the Bible and to take note of any connections uh, that you see. My my uh, 24-year-old son initiated recently reading through the Bible together. Um, you know, he's a grad student, but he, he lives— uh, uh, at home uh, now, partly because of COVID and classes being online, and and so we have had opportunity to to read through uh, scripture. And so he had this crazy idea to uh, to read the Bible not in one year but in one month. And uh, you know we're halfway through. I think it's been about a month and a half. So we're uh, you know not quite doing it, but uh, yes. it's still a great aspiration. And it it drove home to me once again. Uh, just that there's no substitute for listening to or you know reading just large chunks of the Bible, and and it's been a while since I've done that, and so it's just kind of amazing that I probably see more connections now than I would have if I you know had done that five years ago or ten years ago, um, you know. And then, in addition, I would say. There's a lot of good books on biblical theology. It's it's a burgeoning discipline, as you know. Uh, there's several uh, really good series. Of course, uh, you know uh, D.A. Carson's uh, New Studies in Biblical Theology series. has many excellent volumes. Um, there's uh, Lexham as a New Series, the Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary that I can highly recommend. And... Um, there's also the Biblical Theology of the New Testament series, which I edited. So there's, there's, there's plenty of, of uh, you know, food out there, and, and of, of literature uh, in addition to reading the Bible, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, and you know, just uh, from my personal experience, I'm currently working on a biblical theology myself with a with a actually an Australian a co-author, Greg Goswell, uh, who teaches in Sydney. And so he—he's an Old Testament scholar. You know, I'm—I'm I'm covering the New Testament, and I've uh, finished a draft recently of my part. And essentially, the way I wrote that first draft was just with my with my New Testament by my side, with facing pages, you know, Greek and English, uh, and uh, and some parallel passage passages uh, indicated as well. Uh, because again, biblical theology is essentially inductive and it's essentially drawing connections that you find in scripture itself um, and it's just uh, reinforcing the just the the beauty of God's word and the way it is coherent, the way it's uh, all uh, driven by the one God and you know sending his son and uh, pouring out the Holy Spirit, and, and so it helps you see the uh, the bigger picture and the way uh, the Scripture hangs together, and that's important to not lose sight of, you know, uh, because in 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 our churches often we might be just in Philippians or in uh, you know First Samuel, and it's sometimes hard to see the totality of Scripture.
1: Yes, yeah. Thank you for highlighting that. And you know, this this podcast is called The Expositors Collective. You know, we we uh we train with our in-person training weekends uh in the past and future, but not now. You know, we, we train people to be Bible expositors, to to teach the text, to teach the passage. H- however, yeah, there's I think there's ways to teach the passage completely isolated from everything else. But then I think you're proposing that the passage be taught fully in line with what came before it and then also in anticipation of what comes before what comes after it is that is that correct
0: yeah that's true uh, i should add that you know let somebody get the wrong impression i'm i'm not advocating some sort of a approach where you just jump around uh, wildly <laughs> from mm-hmm. you know passage to passage all over scripture i Personally, I actually do advocate expository preaching, where you stay with your text and okay. you explain that text. But as you do so, where it is helpful to point out connections with other portions of Scripture, so people realize that uh, you know this is not the only passage on the subject, or or there's a background to that to that passage earlier in Scripture, or or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, there was a a a, a young guy, and he was converted um, here, um, you know, kind of just brand new Christian, uh, started coming to the church, let's say in I don't know. And, and it was in the summer and I was preaching through one Samuel and, um, and, and he was there. And of course you, you connect the story to Samuel to, to Christ. And there was those connections and, you know, and it worked and he, he, he was really saved, you know? So, so there was that, there was that gospel presentation, but we're coming up to like December and we started an Advent series. And, and he said to me, you know, I'm just really excited to hear just like, you know, the ordinary Christian stuff. Like what, what else is it? Not just like David hiding in caves um, and, and, Saul trying to kill him but like I'm excited to hear about Jesus born in a manger just like the ordinary Christian thing so maybe I was just a little, a little too near I was it was a matter of like he was learning about David and Saul and then Christ but like he wanted to hear like the the, just the regular stuff as well and so pulling that in is valuable yeah uh, okay, so I'd love to hear about um, you know your your first sermon back in '94 was on the Gospel of John or the, the prologue to John. Uh, you've you've written about it um, extensively, extensively, and um, and I'm actually preaching through John right now, and I'm I'm coming up on John chapter 17. So. Uh, can you help me? How how should I preach John seventeen? I wanna I wanna. <laughs> this podcast is kind of a side gig. Uh, I'm mostly a preacher, and help me redeem this time. What what should I say for John seventeen?
0: Uh, absolutely. Well, uh, of course, uh, John seventeen is the final portion of the farewell discourse in 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 John's Gospel, which starts in chapter thirteen and ends with uh, Jesus' final prayer. Uh, I recently wrote an essay on John 17 for the Table Talk magazine. If
1: if you ah. can chase
0: that down, I think the whole issue is devoted to that, by the way. Uh, now, uh, John 17, uh, to me, is a major passage in John's mission theology, uh, where Jesus prays that his followers uh, be one and, and love one another, uh, just as the Trinity uh, loves one another Uh, so that the world may know that the Father sent him. So I think we see that it is essential for our mission in the world to, uh, as a believing community, to be united in purpose and to be knit together in love, or uh, else our message will likely fall on deaf ears. And, you know, I I grieve over, you know, some of that rigid denominationalism that we find so often. And uh, I just feel like, uh, Jesus' prayer uh, hasn't yet been answered very well. Uh, yeah. Sometimes, as a church, we fall, uh, you know, short of of uh, uh, the potential that there would be in our mission in the world if we're only more uh, focused on the essentials and and more, you know, filled with with Christ's love for. For one another, um, or even evangelism, if we're primarily motivated just by by love for sinners. Um, so those are just a few thoughts on, on on John seventeen.
1: Wow, wow! I mean, well, and that's just me being totally, totally selfish, trying to to double up on my podcast time and and sermon prep time. But I mean, so I'm I'm listening and I actually took some notes uh, just there. So essentially, though, is that. Like, that is me as an individual preacher asking you as like a, no offense, like a living commentary, um, like what I should preach. Um, How how do you think, though, that, you know, preachers should really use commentaries? Like, should we open them up and say, essentially, what should I say about John 17? Like I just did to you.
0: Yeah, well, I think... Uh, my, my good friend Greg Goswell, I mentioned him earlier. You know, he always says it's amazing how much light the Bible sheds on commentaries. Uh, and <laughs> it's this well known joke, right? That we usually look at it the other way around, you know, how much light commentaries shed on the Bible. And so, uh, certainly they're not a substitute, you know, for our own study of scripture. So, if, if, if as a writer or as a preacher, if I essentially just, uh, compile, you know, a bunch of quotes from commentaries or put together a sermon, you know, just the way maybe some students write a research paper by just uh, calling quotes from different sources, Uh, it's not really them. It's not really me. I'm not really engaged, engaging with the text. And so I won't really have the authority and the authenticity and the credibility, the ethos to To impact my audience because it's essentially all secondhand uh, knowledge. And so I think it's almost better to be maybe less uh, sophisticated, but to be genuine, uh, you know, in in sharing what we've discovered in God's word for ourselves. But, but that said, of course, um, every preacher uh, needs good commentaries. And so I would think there are certain series that specifically aim to equip pastors. Uh, and so, uh, as opposed to more academic series for scholars. So I would say, you know, uh, series like the, um, the Becknet or the Zeknet, you know, the Baker or Zondervan exegetical yeah, yeah. commentaries, uh, the, the, the Expositors commentary, uh, the, now in a revised edition, uh, series like that, or now, uh, Lexham's, uh, uh, evangelical exegetical commentary series, the EEC, those would all be uh, probably the most helpful because those are designed to actually illumine the text. Some commentaries give you a lot of knowledge and information, but it's extraneous to, you know, the actual passages of a preacher you would have to wade through a lot of really irrelevant information (laughs) to to get to the, you know, the relevant stuff. So that would be maybe one tip I might have.
1: And thank you so much for highlighting, you know, like as... Preachers preparing sermons, there's they're not research papers. And so it's not a matter of like how many quotes can you can you pull in? And I I, I noticed you speak about the importance of having your own voice, or there's got to be it's coming through your own experience. Like to, to jump earlier, you spoke about how, you know, marriage and parenting and suffering has prepared you to be a better teacher and preacher. But if if all you're doing is standing in the pulpit and 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 compiling a list of um connected quotes from other writers, and it doesn't even matter who you are, but like but God has equipped you to teach and preach,
0: yeah, and you know, I think that that confidence comes with time, I think as a young preacher or you know teacher, naturally, you feel inadequate and you feel like who am I and there's other scholars or preachers who have so much more experience and insight and you know you you, you try to uh, draw from them that that's not wrong, but I think over time hopefully we will grow in in confidence that you know we have something to say ourselves and that that God wants us to be ourselves. you know He doesn't want us to to try to pretend to be somebody we're not or to just kind of uh, you know draw from from maybe some of the the most popular preachers out there.
1: right right absolutely. Um so so the wrong way to use commentaries is just to cut and paste or to to look for quotes uh the the right way, and you even kind of highlighted those ones from from Lexham and Baker and others that kind of that point and help you to understand the text best um is that am I getting it right?
0: I mean, in my case, I can also speak from the one who's actually written commentaries for preachers. And yeah, so my rule was always is it helpful in? You know, understanding the text better, uh, and as a result, there's certain maybe interesting information that I ended up not including because I decided, actually, <laughs> it's it's not relevant to say the way John wrote his gospel. It, the, maybe either the information was not available then or or almost certainly you know that was not part of his intent for writing. And so then again, as preachers who are trying to explain what, what John is saying here, you know, I if anything I'm almost confusing people <laughs> by feeding them information <laughs> that I actually, you know, detracts from understanding John better. So I think that would be uh, a, a good rule of thumb for a preacher, just like in their use of illustrations, which, by the way, is, is you know, something I've over the years found is one of the hardest thing to do, to use illustrations uh, wisely and appropriately, you know, to, to select quotes from commentaries that genuinely are insightful when it comes to, you know, shedding light on on Paul's or, or Matthew's intent in writing a given passage.
1: Hmm. Not just to say look and, and yeah, I think in my earliest days of preaching and you know when I was quite young, I started preaching when I was 20, 23, you know, quite quite young, and I really wanted people almost this this insecurity, I wanted people to know, hey, listen, I'm young, I don't have a lot of life experience, but I'm really smart, <laughs> you know, or or I'm really well read. So let me just quote you so many people so that you know that I'm I'm well read. And that's that's not the right reason to use to use quotes to, to to compensate for your own insecurity or especially you young teachers and preachers that's not you're not trying to, to buy credibility by leaning on the quotes of others.
0: Yeah, I think uh, another uh, good uh, use of quotes I've seen Tim Keller, who I think is an excellent example of that. Use quotes to connect with his audience. So he would try to find out what are they reading, and then he's reading those things yeah. and then pulls out quotes just for them to understand that he knows where they're at and, you know, what they're thinking, and, 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 and it, it, it builds incredible rapport with the audience. So I think I found that, you know, uh, more, uh, maybe, uh, you know, less excellent preachers would would use a lot of illustrations from their own lives, and if they do that, they sometimes come across like they're self-absorbed, you know, and and I understand you want to be personal and transparent as a preacher. But I think it's also important to have illustrations drawn from the lives of the people to whom you're uh, ministering so you can engage them where they're at, you know, rather than just getting to know you where you're at. Wow.
1: Man, that's that is that's solid gold. That's that's so good. And you know, like, um, and people probably care a whole lot more about the stuff that they're reading or watching more than they care about even the best Spurgeon quote. Uh, you know, like be- preachers like Spurgeon quotes. Normal people, you know, I, I don't want to say they don't like them, but there's you know, for all, this kind of self-referential preacher culture of just you know. You know Spurgeon, Stott, Edwards, Spurgeon, Stott, Edwards. You know the same circle of things, but you know it's it's very valid to to quote. You know not just um, the news, but like the local newspaper. What does the local newspaper have to say about this?
0: Yeah, and it helps. You know, having uh, teenagers and, and 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 children in their in their earlier mid twenties because you know they don't even know some of those icons like of you yeah, know nineteenth yeah. or twentieth century preaching, and and it means nothing to them and. Sure. We can educate them. That's that's yes. important, you know, but uh, at the same time, it's not the world they live in. And so at least some of our time we want to spend on being students of, of, of you know, contemporary popular culture. And, you know, I have a seven. Uh, well, he's 19 now, hard to believe, year old son who tells me about the rapper NF and about, you know, whatever, Kanye West's latest album. And, you know, so he keeps me fresh and and current in my grasp of contemporary culture. And that's, that's, you know, invaluable. Uh, It gets harder as you get older because, you know, you just, I guess, uh, uh, you know, the the music you like is maybe different from the music people like right now. But uh, you just have to be you know, to stay relevant and to speak the language that people are speaking in your congregation, especially the younger generation.
1: Wow. And, and you have the advantage of, of children or you know, young adults in, in under your roof to help you. So, so Dr. Kostenberger, do you have a TikTok account yet? Are you on TikTok?
0: I don't, but, uh, but my older son is a, a TikTok genius. He has hundreds no of way. thousands of followers. Uh, I just still don't get it, but he, he keeps telling me, uh, I'm telling him, that's for you. Uh, wow. I'm just simply too old for TikTok. But uh, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating phenomenon. I, I would have never even thought that something like that would even catch on. But obviously, it's all the rage now.
1: Yeah, like I don't have one either, but uh I maybe maybe I should I don't know. I'm not a good dancer, so um okay, I'm I'm aware of the time. Uh in, in the remaining like seven minutes, uh would you maybe walk us through like your your sermon prep routine in such a way that we can kind of follow along and uh hopefully be an encouragement to us?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, um first of all, I feel strongly about uh preaching any given passage in the context of the entire book that I'm preaching. And so uh, I make sure that I read the entire book uh, of that passage multiple times. And then I outline the book, you know, the structure of the book uh, as much as possible. Not so much how I would outline it, but I try to discern the author's own structure or flow of organization, whether it's in a narrative or in a letter. Um, so obviously that'll look different depending on the genre of the passage. And then uh, after having read through the book multiple times and having you know outlined it and charted it, any transitions, I develop my sermon outline uh, as much as possible uh, so that it f- uh, flows organically from the passage I'm preaching on. In some cases, that's easy. Uh, like when I preach on Jesus temptation narrative that, you know, naturally breaks down into uh, three temptations. That's obviously every preacher's dream. You have your three yes. points right in your passage. Uh, in other cases, yep. it may be a bit more challenging to find, sure. uh, the, 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 main points in the text. Uh, I personally, I've been greatly influenced by a, uh, professor, uh, of preaching at Dallas seminary, Abraham Kurovilla, uh, and, uh, you know, who who uh, practices what he calls pericable preaching, that is, uh, I preach on a given unit in relation to the preceding and the following unit uh, in a given book. Um, and then uh, when it comes to the hermeneutic that I employ, which obviously is very important underlying underlying any passage I preach on, uh, I employ what what I call the hermeneutical triad of history, literature, and theology, that is, I determine the the historical setting, which often is mentioned at the beginning of a given literary unit, uh, say in the Gospels or in Old Testament narrative anyway. Uh, I look at that historical setting. I look at the literary flow of the passage, uh, the the storytelling that's going on, like in the book of Esther. And of course, uh, above all, I I try to discern a theological message of a given passage. So uh, history, literature, and theology.
1: I, I had a feeling that hermeneutical triad would make an appearance in this. And as as I was watching the time, I was like, I, I don't think it's going to get a chance talking about the hermeneutical triad.
0: <laughs> but there we go. There it is. Yes, it's my—I uh, just uh, revised that book. came out 10 years ago. Uh, so the second edition of Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, just came out where I introduced the triad and show how it works genre by genre. So for your listeners, that might be a, a plug to, to get a hold of that book if they're interested to pursue that further.
1: Yeah. And I, I believe we're actually doing a, a giveaway of, of, of that one. Is that is that, the, is that the one? I think so. Yeah. So we're going to actually give away a copy. And so the details of that are going to be in the show notes and we'll be hyping how to do that. Um, so sorry. We, so we've gotten from the from the passage, the, the book's been outlined, you've you've done the, the triad And then what do you do with that? How do you turn that? How do you go from that understanding of the text to a sermon about the text?
0: Yeah, that's a a good point. Well, I would um, basically try to uh, keep my audience in mind, and that's something I continually work on uh, because, again, the text is what it is. But, you know, as best as I can, I try to put myself in the position of those who are listening. And even their degree of biblical literacy, for example, uh, how much I can assume they already know or how much I need to explain – and I, I find suitable illustrations, which, as I mentioned, is one of the hardest things I think a preacher does. And uh, I've I've heard so many either inaccurate illustrations or illustrations that are funny or interesting uh, and informative, but don't necessarily help illumine that particular yeah. point in that passage. So I try to be as careful as I can to, to choose illustrations. Maybe Jesus himself illustrates it. Well, if so, I, I've... I don't have to look any farther uh, or scripture elsewhere, you know, sheds light on it. So I, I don't neglect, uh, you know, scripture itself as a source for my illustrations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. And and there's something that you wrote that I, I have jotted down here in my notebook. You said that, you know, we're not complete until we apply our interpretive insights to our own lives and then to our congregations, that it's not just a, 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 a a, a, a puzzle, you know, or a or a crossword that we find the solution to, but this actually must apply to our lives, and then must be applied to the lives of our hearers as well.
0: Absolutely, and so in that hermeneutics book, the very last chapter I wrote about ten pages on application, genre by genre. You know, how do you apply wisdom literature? How do you apply apocalyptic or you know historical narrative or prophetic passages? And like you said, you want to start with yourself. Uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, if you love God, right, you you, you want to be the first one to uh, to put some discovery from Scripture that you learned into practice, and, and then you want to share that discovery with, with others. So, uh, it's just so important to uh, to not neglect uh, applying scriptural truth to your own life. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well. Yeah, Dr. Kostasberger, I'm. I I want to honor your time. Want to honor the time of our of our hearers. Um, it's kind of a lightning round there towards the end. But thank you so much for introducing us to the hermeneutical triad and your son's TikTok and and so much of, of your of your life there. This is yeah a, a wide ranging conversation. So kind of as as we referenced yeah. So there we are going to be doing a, a giveaway of of that book that you've been referencing, the Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, the second edition. Um, and then so so I guess you know one or two lucky listeners will get a free copy. But also uh, Lexham Press, who we've been you know quite friendly with uh, uh, recently. <clears throat> They're not doing a giveaway, but they're doing a discount for listeners to the podcast. So if the listeners go to Leximpress.com slash expositors, uh, there will be, uh, I believe, your two books that you've published uh, through them that are going to be at, a, I believe, a 40 percent discount. So that's a pretty deep cut. So that's uh, that's worth checking out. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I really do appreciate your time. Uh, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but would you mind maybe praying for for the hearers and for the the future future or current Bible teachers that are listening to this?
0: Be glad to absolutely, Mike. Let's uh, let's uh, pray. Great God, we uh, just thank you for this conversation, and we pray that it uh, has been um, honoring uh, to you and to your Word. I think of um, Paul's words to Timothy, uh, be diligent to show yourself approved by God, um, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And Lord, we pray that um, by your grace, we would be people who would rightly learn, rightly to handle uh, your word of truth, to cut it straight as it were, to, to, to be diligent and to one day meet with your approval that we would not need to shrink back in in shame on Judgment Day for the way we we handled your um, holy word. Um, Thank you for uh, this podcast and for those listening. Pray that you would equip them uh, to serve you faithfully. Um, And uh, we thank you for providing all the resources that we have to do so. And we thank you for your son and for what he did for us on the cross. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, amen. Amen. Uh, Thank you again, Dr. Kostenberger. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I trust that you, the listeners to this podcast, um, were benefited by that great conversation. So remember, in the show notes, uh, there's going to be links to a lot of the resources that have been referenced in the conversation, um, as well as information on how you can enter to win a free copy of Invitation to Biblical Interpretation, Volume Two, and also where you can go to get those uh, deeply discounted uh, Lexham Press publications. So. I really enjoyed this, and next week there's a conversation with Pastor John Stark from Manhattan in New York, and he speaks about communicating the love of God through expository preaching. I'm going to leave you with a clip from next Tuesday's episode, and I look forward to connecting with you then. All right, God bless.
2: I think for pastors, for us to get up regularly and say things, communicate using our words, saying things publicly without um, a discerning um, voice of love, I I just think it actually does things to us. It changes us. It, um, It malforms our heart. To be doing that, so it's a danger for us not to be regularly communicating in love. Um, And I, you know, I, if I was talking to other pastors in a room, I would probably say something like, "Hey, be careful! Um, It's dangerous for you not to be regularly loving your people with your words." Um, And just speaking truth Mm -hmm. is not the same thing as speaking love. Um, I think we've we've maybe had it in our minds that, well, speaking truth is the most loving thing. That's true. But there's a reason why Paul says speak the truth in love, because there's a way to speak the truth with a lot of indifference to love that I think, you know, we talk about how that damages other people and alienates other people. But I think that actually does things to us It shapes us. And um, so I, I, I think it's really important for us to, to nurture that and form that in our own hearts.
1: I've never heard anyone articulate that before. And I'm nodding because I I think I agree, but help me understand why, why is that bad for us to not articulate it?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, um, we are, we are shaped, I think as people um, primarily through our habits. Um, We're shaped by prayer and worship and Hmm. fellowship and and this, and we are putting ourselves in the way of how the spirit works in those dynamics. Um, so, you know, I, I can't ultimately, um, sanctify myself. I can only put myself in the way of the spirit's sanctifying power. Um, I am, I am a Calvinist still. Um, so, but at the same time, um, the things that we do, um, how we spend our money, um, how we spend our free time, um, who we spend time. It does shape us. And I, I do think regularly communicating to people in a, in a way that's indifferent to love indifferent to how they're receiving it on how they're being changed. Um, it changes us to being really cynical, hard-hearted, um, transactional people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think there's a, you know, when the Bible says love covers a multitude of sins, I, I think a, a lack of love um, makes room for all kinds of iniquity um, in our hearts. And so it, it just allows us to be changed towards um, real, I think really scary places. And, you know, with spiritual leadership, there's all kinds of um, dangers for abuses and um, things like that, and so I, I think love is just a really important thing to nurture as as you are shepherding God's people.